1955, a group of Christians were, uh, I'm going to move around a little bit. They, they had traveled and were established in, the, uh, in part of the heart of the Amazon basin and around Ecuador. And they were reaching, trying to reach out this isolated tribe, uh, a very primitive people, people that were so remote that the world really didn't know much about them. They'd heard rumors about them, but they were trying to reach the Wainobi tribe. And these were a group of people that had lived very primitive, isolated from the world. But their reputation was renowned. They were known for their savageness. They were known for their violence. They, they were known for people that came to see them didn't survive. But these missionaries wanted to reach out to them. They wanted to reach out and make friends with them. They wanted to reach out to them and let them know about the goodness of God. They wanted to reach out and help their, their dying people. And one day, one of the missionary pilots who was flying around searching for the people found one of their little housing locations where, where they had been staying. And he, he notified his, his other missionary friends in the area. And over the next few months, they started establishing a relationship with these people. They would fly their plane in low and slow and drop gifts, drop tools, drop things off to help these people. And the tribe became familiar with them. And after several months of this, the missionaries became pretty confident and pretty comfortable that, hey, these people know who we are. We know who they are. So let's go in and make contact with them. And that's what they did. They found a place where they could land their plane and found a little sandbar where they could set up camp. And for five days while they set up camp, they reached out to these people and they visited with them and they talked with them and they got to know them a little bit. Then one day, for an unexplained reason, the tribe came and attacked them. Killed all five of the missionaries. We're really not sure why. but they slaughtered them all. Well, a few years later, the families of these missionaries, the wives and the children, they decided we're going to reach out to them one more time. And this time, the wives and the children went, and they made contact with these people. And so shortly, the tribe realized, these are, the, these are the family of those men we killed. Now, when the tribe killed these men, they noticed they didn't fight back. They thought that was peculiar because everybody fought with them. It was part of their heritage, part of who they were. These men, they didn't fight. And now their wives and their children are coming to live with them. And so they were a little reluctant to trust them. They were a little reluctant to get close to them. Because see, for in the Wanobi tribe, if somebody hurt you, you hurt them back. If somebody killed one of your family members, it was up to you, not as an act of revenge, but it was a duty, it was a matter of honor that you and go kill them. And this tribe knew that they had killed their family. And so they knew that their children, it was the children's duty to one day come and kill them. And so they were very reluctant to get to know them. And over the next several years, the family would come, and they would spend the summers with this tribe. And they would minister to them. They would give them medicine. They would help show them how to use certain tools. And they would spend time with them, getting to know them. 
And eventually, after many years, some of them began to learn about this great creator that they called. And they learned that this great creator had a son. And this son was speared in his side. And he did not spear back. In fact, he taught not to spear back. And his son left markings, left a trail, so that those who followed him would know the path to follow. And after many years, these people, over time, began to understand who this creator was, this great creator, and the markings his son left behind, and began to understand what it meant to not spear back. And over time, they had a wrestle with this realization that here this family was ministering to them, telling them about the great creator and the love he has for people. And they had to reconcile that because they had killed their family. They had killed their brothers, their husbands, their dads. And they had to wrestle with that as they began to know who God was as they began to see God face to face, they had to wrestle with that. They had to wrestle with the savagery that they had treated these men with who did not fight back, who came to bring a message of friendship and of love, and who they slain. And I think that's where we find Jacob in this. Here Jacob is. He is... We're familiar with his life. Most of us are familiar with his life. He grew up. He was the youngest of two brothers. So by the, their tradition, by all rights and accounts, he didn't have any privileges to the family property. He didn't have privileges to the family business. He didn't have any privileges to his father's great final blessing. But somehow he got all that. Somehow, through his trickery and his treachery, he managed to steal that from his family. He managed to swindle the rights to all this for himself. And he managed to anger and hurt his family so much that he had to leave home. He had to leave it all behind. And where he travels to, where he goes to find a wife with his, with his mom's family, he decides to go ahead and make an honest living and to work and he falls in love. And so he works. He finds this beautiful woman, wants to make her his wife, so he's going to work for seven years. And he works for seven years, and what's he get? Fourteen years of labor for two wives. So not quite what he'd hoped for, but he worked for it. And then he continued to work for his father-in-law, who was a very greedy, stingy boss, for six more years, who continued to change his wages and continued to, to think that, that Jacob wasn't treating him right. And Jacob continued to work hard. And eventually, he becomes so wealthy that his kinsmen, his wife's family, were uncomfortable with him being around because now he owned most of the land and he owned most of the livestock that everybody had, had raised their livestock on. And they would become very disgruntled. So now, what's he going to do? Decides, well... Not much choice. Let's go back home because the future here is not very bright. So he gathers up his possessions, gathers up his wife, his wives, and his children, 
and they start heading back home to Canaan. And that's where we find him here. He just crossed one of the fords of Jabbok. And he realizes, my brother's coming to meet me. Last time I met my brother, he hated me. He wanted to kill me. I took everything that was his. But I can't go back home. I can't go back where I've been living the past 20 years. They don't want me. They don't like me. So he knows he needs to go forward. But he really doesn't want to. He really doesn't want to go and live back in Canaan, even though he knows what, it's, what he must do. And so out of fear, he sends his wives and his children back across the Jabbok. And he sends gifts for his brother out ahead of him. And he waits there alone at night in the dark, all alone. In this moment of all alone, when he's realized everything he's done, his past has come back to haunt him, everything he's ever done to people has now come upon him. And he's emptying himself out to God. Just like in Psalm 17 when we opened. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from the lips of my deceit. And if you try my heart, and if you visit me by night, if you test me and will find no wickedness in me, my mouth does not transgress. And I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my words. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I shall be satisfied, beholding your likeness. And this is where Jacob meets God face to face. And it's here that we find ourselves in similar situations, meeting God face to face. We find ourselves pleading before God. We empty ourselves out. We cry before God. We think about everything it is that we've done wrong or we could have done better. And we come before God, pure of heart, pure of motive, pure of desire of desire, not looking to deceive anybody, not looking to take anything that's not ours, not looking to fulfill our own greed. We're face to face with God. What happens? The great creator speaks. See, when the great creator spoke to Jacob, he received a blessing. He became Israel so that his children and his children's children would be blessed. And that one day, the whole world will be blessed through them. And they would bring about the Messiah, the Christ. And we get to know about this Messiah. We get to know about Jesus. And it's great. It's exciting. But is it simply enough to know about Jesus? Is it simply enough just to know about this great Creator? See, when we when we get to see God face to face, are we just going to stand there and say, I know you. I've seen you before. Yeah, you're that, you're that one guy. You, you did that, that one thing. That's pretty neat. So, see, I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't think you all think so either. 
I think when we see God face to face, we're going to realize just how much it is we've messed up. I think when we remember, when we see God face to face, we're going to remember all those little things, those little things that we could have done better or we could have done right or that we know we should have done. And I think we're going to expect something. I think we're going to expect God to do something. I think we're going to expect God to have a reaction toward us. And what kind of reaction do we expect that to be? Disappointment? Do we imagine God like that brother or that sister or that friend that we cheated, that we betrayed? Do we think God is going to look down upon us and and think about all those things we could have done or could have been? Or do we imagine God like that old man shaking his head at us saying, if you'd just done it my way. Or do we think of God like that woman who says, you could have done better. And then give us that guilt trip. Or do we think of God like that boss who just wants more, more, more. Let's take a moment to think about that. Let's think about His goodness and His love and His grace. Let's put our mind at ease. For those are people that we've all been at one point in time. Those are people that we have known or been. We may have traded places with them a few times. But those people aren't God. Now, when we see God face to face, and God sees us face to face, It'll be like Jesus when he went alone to find some time, some peace and quiet, and some solitude. He's out in the middle of nowhere, and the people come, and they seek him out. And they're looking for that face-to-face encounter with somebody they know represents God. And what what did Jesus do? He felt pity and compassion for them. He was moved. He was moved by their sickness, by their sorrow, by their aches, by their pains. And he reached out to them. He did something about it. Just like in our Gospel reading. There in Matthew. said, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there and he went to a deserted place by boat to be by himself. And when he went ashore, there was the great crowd. And in verse 14, he had compassion for them and he cured their sick. Was that all he did? No. He didn't just cure their sick. He just didn't talk to them. But he blessed them. They came to see him face to face. And while they were there, not only did they get cured, but they ate and they were full and there was leftovers. See, when we see God face to face, we find that same grace. Like Jacob, our struggles may leave their wounds. Sometimes when we have scars from the struggles we deal with in life, sometimes seeking out God and doing what God asks us may leave us wounded and limping. And our past may try to haunt us, but God's grace is there for us. 
God's love is there for us. When we remember how we've treated our parents, our siblings, our children, even our friends, or that stranger. Sometimes shame may overwhelm us. But let's go and seek God's face. Let's purify our hearts. Let's pour ourselves out before God. See, we may never be able to erase those scars of what life has left on us. Or those scars of what we've done to hurt others. But God is there to take us in, to heal us, and to bless us. God is there to love us no matter what, and no matter where we've run off to hide. And for those of us confident enough to know that we know that we know, for those confident enough to know that, man, God is by my side, those of us that have that relationship with God, well, we're the face of God to someone. To someone who needs us to be the vessel of God's love to them and God's grace to them, no matter where they are or what they've done. See, we live in a world full of people who don't know God. Many of us may have grown up knowing God, but now we live in a world full of people who don't know God or who have been hurt by the people who say they know God. See, Jesus didn't just take a spear in the side for us. Or for us to know not to go and spear others. He did this so that others wouldn't have to take the spear in their side. He did it so that those who have been scarred by the spears of life, could be healed. So as we live our lives, let us remember that we are the face of God to someone. Creator God, your love reaches through the heavens and stretches through the skies. You know our hearts you know our minds. You know our motives. You know our past, and let you, yet you love us anyway, God. Lord, as we meditate on your word this week, let us remember your grace that covers us. Let us remember, remember your goodness, your kindness, your love. And help us to grow in that grace and be a living example for you. Help us to be a vessel of your grace to those who are hurting. And may we be that face of your love, grace, compassion, and healing. In Jesus' name, amen.